As your interior designer, I'm saying do everything in black. Walls, sofa, carpet, goldfish, everything. Um, can we not have a bit of colour? Maybe one tiny highlight in Battleship Grey. It's your home, so you should be in charge. With Avancard's flexible home improvement loan, you are. You can choose any repayment period that works best for you up to 84 months. That's seven years. Find out more at avancard.ie. Lending criteria, terms and conditions apply. New applications only. Seven-year term applies to minimum loan value of €20,000. Avancard Dock Trading as Avancard is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. I am your host, the Doc Chad Matthews. Lordsofpain.net. Wherever you may be listening... Doc says, Doc says, uh, this is just what the doc ordered. I'm saying welcome. They sick of the other shows. Chad here to help them. The author of the mania errors bringing terror on LOP radio. This is the prepare for the knowledge that he about to showcase. Like a bar that you lift, his opinions hold weight. He wrote a few books and he's working on another for y'all. This a five star podcast. Chad, let's get it on. Author of the WrestleMania era, the book of sports entertainment, and of the doctor's orders on lordsofpain.net. Doc says. Hello and welcome to the Doc Says on LOP Radio. I am your host, the Doc Chad Matthews, author of the WrestleMania Era, the book of sports entertainment, the greatest matches and rivalries of the WrestleMania Era, and of the Doctor's Orders on LordsOfPain.net. Wherever you may be listening, thank you for making me a part of your day. WrestleMania weekend is in the books, and it sure was a long one. WrestleMania itself clocking in as the longest event in WWE history at about seven and a half total hours when including the pre-show. My goodness, I have a lot of thoughts. I'm going to share with you my top ten matches, moments, and happenings of the weekend. And along the way, give you my general impression impressions of WrestleMania itself. So, number ten for me for the weekend came from the Hall of Fame ceremony. And the Hall of Fame, interesting setup by the way. Doing it with uh, the X, the NXT TakeOver setup largely still there from the night before. Not setting up the classic stage, but doing it in the ring, complete with the ring entrances. Not having a host for a lot of the people involved. Not actually having a presenter. Just uh, basically throwing from the video package straight into the induction speech. It, it was interesting. I'll need to see another year or two of it before it finally sinks in. Because the Hall of Fame ceremony has always been a favorite of mine from WrestleMania weekend, dating back to when they aired it on USA for the first time in 2005 when Hogan got inducted. So I've always been a fan of it. I want to call attention to Bret Hart's speech because he was giving a great speech for the Hart Foundation. Then he gets tackled by that moron. And then he comes back out and finishes what was still an incredible speech. So good for him. Good for all of the wrestlers who jumped in. I think it was Dash Wilder who uh, or Scott Dawson. I think, actually, who walked in and basically just wailed on the moron who jumped Bret Hart. So, geez, my goodness, what a scene. I mean, I was actually just about to go to bed uh, after Bret Hart did his speech. But when that happened, I mean, I was glued. That's one of those rare, strange happenings I hope to never see again. Man, if you ever go to a WWE show and you're listening to this and you think even for a split second about doing something stupid like that, just don't do it, man. For real. Have a... Have, a, have some sense of respect for the people who are out there doing their thing. For crying out loud, what a freaking moron. But, dude, kudos to Bret Hart, because Bret Hart was a beast that night. He told a beautiful story about the Hart Foundation's history. I love how he called attention 
to some of the classic tag teams they faced. It was just a great induction speech, the, the speech of the night, in my opinion, and one of the ones I was looking forward to most because I've always admired Bret Hart's ability, much like that of Edge, to contextualize a career, to contextualize what certain parts of the business meant to him. He's always been good at that, and I really appreciated his speech, and Natty's part of it too, for that matter. Great speech. I wish the Hall of Fame um, continues to be something that adds to WrestleMania weekend. I hope they figure out a way to make it a little bit more like it was before. I think once the part-timers start filtering away from WrestleMania, WrestleMania itself won't feel like sort of an extension of the Hall of Fame ceremony, and therefore the spotlight will go back to the Hall of Fame being this night for the nostalgic part of our fandoms. But until then, cheers to Bret Hart. Cheers to the Hart Foundation and to the WWE Hall of Fame inductees for the class of 2019. Number nine for me from WrestleMania weekend came in the form of a moment. And it's not the type of thing I typically like. And I won't say that philosophically I in any way agree that Elias should be out there doing one of his performances on a seven and a half hour show that pushes every single limit that a pro wrestling fan, or a fan of any sport or entertainment for that matter, has in terms of their ability to commit that gargantuan runtime emotionally. I mean, even your eyes, it's hard to keep your eyes on something for seven and a half hours. So I don't know that we need Elias going out there and doing a 15-minute segment. But as a big fan of the Doctor of Thugonomics from back in the day, As someone who watched John Cena's career play out from the very first day that it started to present day, you know, I always liked the Doctor of Thugonomics. I always thought that that character was great. I thought it was novel. I thought it was such an awesome way for for someone to get over. And John Cena made, absolutely, made the most of that. So, you know, much like once upon a time seeing The Undertaker after the Biker Taker came came around, seeing him come back as the dead man there for a long time seeing the dead man was a really nostalgic pop type thing waiting to happen and i think john cena whenever he wants to bust out the doctor of thugonomics again come out and spit some rhymes for a few minutes on any unsuspecting person who is the uh the target of his ire then by all means john cena you come out and you do your you do your word life because i still say word life to this day so that was I actually, I did enjoy that. Not my usual cup of tea, but I found in this particular cup of tea something to enjoy. Number eight, I'm going to give it to the the females from the main event of WrestleMania and the semi-main event of NXT TakeOver. Obviously, the women's main event of WrestleMania with Charlotte and Becky and Ronda, that was the, that was the biggest match of the weekend. That was the match that was always, I think, on paper going to be the most historic and it will always in many ways be the most historic match from WrestleMania weekend 2019 because you know five years ago I would have laughed in your face if you would have told me that the women were going to main event WrestleMania a couple of years ago maybe not but five years ago ten years ago especially I mean I don't I don't even know that I would have taken you seriously enough to have a laugh out loud reaction 10 years ago because it just seemed like such a far-fetched idea. Women have come so far in pro wrestling in the last five years, in WWE especially in the last few 
So to see them main event WrestleMania, to see Charlotte Flair borrow an idea from, uh, I mean, I had this idea long ago, not seriously borrowing, but years ago I had this idea for Alberto, Alberto Del Rio to come flying to Miami for WrestleMania 28 in a helicopter. And here comes Charlotte Flair doing that, channeling her dad from back in the day. I think I remember seeing him fly into like um, um, the the New York Mets, what was their old stadium called, or their current, Shea Stadium. I think I remember seeing him take a helicopter into the stadium. That's such a cool visual. Great presentation there. Great presentation for Ronda Rousey getting played to the ring by Joan Jett. Becky Lynch, great stuff. Just, you know, she's the man. Is what it is. She's got a great act. It is uh, the confidence just just pours off of her. It's obvious, but I guess for me, the reason why this is so low on the list is because the match itself was a little underwhelming to me. I, I've described it to some of the people I've spoken about WrestleMania with. Um, as if you remember the video games back in the day, I haven't played a wrestling video game in years. I just don't play video games that much anymore. But back in the day, uh, for the Nintendo GameCube, I used to do these little matches. And uh, when you would do a triple threat, um, basically it was just offense, 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 and more offense. Until at some point, somebody kind of got a win out of nowhere. A roll up out of nowhere. A finishing move that ended it by knocking into the other person very quickly. It didn't really feel, feel, obviously, with a video game, it didn't feel like there was a story building up to said finish. It just felt like, okay, it finished. And that's the way the WrestleMania main event ended. And the fact that it didn't end perfectly with uh, a smoothly executed finish at that hurts the overall presentation, in my view. It felt a little flat at times because the crowd was so tired. I think just anybody watching at home was so tired, too. I watched it back, and I, I really didn't change my opinion that much. I went into it thinking, you know, that was that was good. I came out of it thinking, you know, that was maybe really good. I don't think it ever got to the point where you can consider it great. Uh, the achievement is momentous, and nothing can take that away from them, though. But in terms of the match itself, um, you know, we just haven't seen yet a, a great main event of one of these gigantic four WrestleMania since 32 to present day. And I don't know what it's going to take. There was some talk on social media about maybe they should have put Kofi and Brian on last. But I think that Kofi and Brian, even if they had the same execution of the match, the fact that the crowd was still going to be dog-tired might have ended up playing a big role in how we remembered it. Uh, much like something great, like, in my opinion, Seth Rollins versus Triple H a couple of years ago was fantastic. But the crowd was so exhausted from so much content in the first couple of hours leading up to that match, that the crowd didn't have anything for it. So people have underrated it because the crowd's quiet. The action's great, but the crowd is so quiet. So I think Kofi and Brian might have run into that same problem. Still a huge thing for the women to have main-evented WrestleMania, and I think they will do it again. There's a lot that they can use in the future. There's the Ronda-Becky match you can come back to. There's the Charlotte and Ronda match you can come back to. There's a lot of fresh stuff that Becky can do. Quite frankly, she still has never wrestled Sasha Banks on the main roster in a one-on-one pay-per-view match. Um, same thing with Bailey. Same thing uh, if they can revisit the Asuka situation, given what happened at the Rumble. So there's all sorts of stuff they can do, and then you combine that with what's coming up through the pipeline. 
in NXT, which I thought was tremendous on Friday night last week. I thought that the four-way match for the NXT Women's Championship was the least heralded on paper on that card, and I still think it was you know, the, the least, so to speak, match on the card quality-wise, but the quality was still very good. I definitely can see myself revisiting that to see if it belongs on my NXT TakeOver History countdown that I've been doing in column form on LOP. I, I, I've got it in my head that it is going to be a match I'd like to go back and see again because in terms of innovation and spot design, in terms of the pace and the action, the length, the thoroughness of the story that they all told collectively, I thought it was really, really good. And my hat goes off to all four of those ladies from Yo Shirai to Kyrie Sane to Shayna Baszler to Bianca Belair. So, well done, ladies. Number seven for me is Seth Rollins winning the Universal Championship. My thoughts on the situation at large are, thank God Seth won. Thank God Brock lost. Kind of a double whammy of emotional resonance for me because as much as I wanted my guy, Seth Rollins, to win, I equally wanted Brock Lesnar to lose. So, emotionally, obviously that payoff was tremendous. I thought it was smart to put it at the beginning of the show because one of my big worries was that since there was really not a lot of momentum behind that match heading into WrestleMania, that given the momentous occasion of the women main eventing and just the organic rise to the forefront of Kofi Kingston, that Seth Rollins and Brock Lesnar, if they got put on late in the show, would really suffer from a lack of heat but they did a great job of putting that match in a position to where it was going to get a lot of heat. And because of that, and because of the length of the show, I do think you're going to see, more often than not moving forward, so long as the brand split exists, you're going to see a big-time top match open the show. I think that's going to become a regular thing. A big championship match or something to that effect is going to open the show because... I think that WWE wants these big matches to get the crowd reaction, and I do think that they are somewhat cognizant of the fact that putting them on late hinders that possibility. I just don't think that they expected that the crowd would be so gassed that they wouldn't have much left for the women's main event, but they miscalculated. They did a great job in calculating Rollins and Lesnar. No matter if the reason behind going on early was because Lesnar wanted to go home, The fact that they put that match where they put it maximized its presentation as a moment. As a match, of course I wanted more. I'm a Seth Rollins guy. The thing that makes Seth Rollins great is that he's such a great in-ring performer. And he's in his early to mid-30s. He's only going to be in its prime for so long. He's already had the big-time knee injury and some other residual knee issues. Now he's been dealing with a bad back. He's got an incredibly athletic style. And maybe he's one of the fortunate few who can push the limits physically for so long that he can have an extended career into his early to mid-40s and be like an AJ Styles, who is himself an exception. He's phenomenal and exceptional. But Seth Rollins, at this point in time, with where he's at and his place in WWE's hierarchy, he's one of the best they've got. He's been one of the best they've had for a long time. And he didn't get the chance to fully showcase that at this WrestleMania, despite the fact that he won the Royal Rumble and was in the ring with a guy who I think he could have told an incredibly engaging story with, in addition to the moment they provided. Uh, my, my buddy from the, from the right side of the pond and sports entertainment is dead, Samuel Plan, is pretty dead set on the idea that the Seth Rollins-Brock Lesnar was a great story. I, I think it was 
a great moment. It was a WrestleMania moment. And in a nutshell, the story that they told in the brief period that they told it, certainly, yeah, I mean, it was it was a lot of fun, but there was a lot more meat on the bones that they could have uh, that they could have pulled off, and and I think that that's going to be part of the legacy of WrestleMania 35 is that the best in the game, arguably, WWE's top in-ring performer at this point, wasn't really given the platform to showcase the fullest extent of his talents, and so as a big-time Seth Rollins fan, I'm equally elated that he won the championship, and and well, maybe not equally, but still somewhat disappointed that he didn't get the chance to go tear the house down because that is what Seth Rollins does better than anyone else. Number six, AJ Styles versus Randy Orton. A match that didn't tear the house down, didn't intend to, but went out and had a really, really strong three-and-a-half star classic mid-card WrestleMania type match. Didn't approach the upper echelon of mid-card mania classics, the likes of uh, Jericho and Christian come to mind, the likes of Orton and Rollins, as mentioned on the show last week, Bret Hart and Roddy Piper, matches of that nature. I think you could put it in the category of a CM Punk versus Randy Orton for Mania 27, maybe in the, the top of the upper second tier, maybe not the first tier, but a really good performance. I went back and watched it again, and when you took out the distractions that the people were having from the lighting issue, then, you know, really a tremendous performance from those guys in the 15, 16 minutes they were given to work. I thought that the counters to their special moves were great. I thought that the flow of the match, though methodical and certainly not intended to be one of those barn burners, told a really good story. That was a really nice in-ring story told. And, you know, I got exactly what I'd hoped for from it. I didn't think it was going to be a show stealer. I thought it had the potential on the top end to be that, but I think it was always going to be a a rock-solid WrestleMania mid-card match that you will enjoy revisiting down the road and be happy that you spent the time revisiting it. I think that uh, my favorite parts of the match involved the teases of the finisher. I love that spot where where, we're... Styles goes up for the first attempt at the um, at the phenomenal forearm. Orton jumps up for the RKO, lands flat. Then AJ hits the 450 splash. I thought that was a great spot and one of those ones that kind of sticks out in my mind, um, kind of like the moment in Brett and Roddy's match at WrestleMania 8, where uh, Brett's got him by the arm. And Roddy's trying to escape from the arm bar and the arm, the arm hold, and he just finally just ends up belly flopping onto the mat. It's just one of those types of moments I think I'll revisit in my memories and think, you know what, I really appreciated that match. It added a lot to that show. Tag teams come in at number five for me. Specifically, I will say, you know, I give a little bit of credit to the SmackDown Tag Team Championship match at WrestleMania that followed Styles Orton. I really enjoyed that. I felt like if you were going to get 8 to 10 minutes for four teams to go out there and do their thing, this is probably what I would consider to now be the standard bearer for the main card at WrestleMania. There have been triple threat four-way tag team matches before at WrestleMania without the stipulation of a ladder, granted. Uh, One that comes to mind is the one at Mania 19 with 
Benoit and Rhino, Los Guerreros, and Team Angle. Another one was at WrestleMania 18 the year prior, where it was, um, I think, the APA, the Dudley Boys, the Hardy Boys, and Billy and Chuck, I want to say. That might have been the four teams. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I liked the frenetic pace of this particular one. All of those matches right there, about the same length. I really liked this one better than those. I think that in this day and age, one of the things that uh, teams tend to do well is just go out there if you don't have much time. Go, go do your thing. Make a memory. Go out and try to do something that adds a lot of value to the card. Because, you know, if you go out there in a 10-minute match and you've got three other teams or four other teams and someone just sits there in a chin lock for like 30 to 45 seconds, that 30 to 45 seconds is is, is as has been at points almost like a tenth of the whole presentation. So I admired the fact that they went out there and this was just balls to the wall action. Loved the spot with the Cesaro swing and Sheamus doing the beats of the Bowery, particularly the Cesaro swing since him and Ricochet spun and spun and spun and spun and spun what felt like forever. Someone send me a tweet at the Doc LOP and tell me what that clocked in as time-wise. I mean, that was incredible. The fact that both of them were not just totally, totally dizzy and wacky is is incredible to me. Would love to see those two guys in a singles match, by the way. But the NXT Tag Team Championship match with Ricochet and Aleister Black against the War Raiders at TakeOver New York. Talking about TakeOver New York, man, I know I say this a lot. I've been guilty of this almost every single time that there's an NXT TakeOver that doesn't involve war games. And that's, that was the best one ever. That was the best one ever. Was that the best one ever? I think when you've got this kind of lineup with five matches and you've got the, you know, all titles on the line in this case with the, with the tag team titles defended, North American and the NXT top title defended, you got a a recipe with the women's title on the line as well for just something great. And I thought TakeOver New York was tremendous and it all started with an amazing tag team match with the War Raiders. A couple of weeks ago when Jay Cool was on the show, we had that discussion about what about the legacy of NXT by itself if you detach it from WWE proper. Obviously, NXT is considered a developmental brand. But there's so much amazing stuff that's happened over these five years. And I think the War Raiders, over the last few months, dating back to when uh, they were in the main event, of TakeOver War Games 2, and then fast-forwarding to Phoenix when they had that awesome match with the Undisputed Era, and now this awesome match with the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic winners and Ricochet and Black. Look at the legacy that those, that those two guys have forged. The War Raiders already are legends in NXT. So I think we're getting to a point. I really do. You combine that with what Gargano did, winning the title in the main event, what Adam Cole has done in NXT, I think it's time we start separating those legacies, or at least entertaining that notion, because I look at the War Raiders, and I sit back and I think to myself, if they go up to the main roster, and they end up being more like the Highlanders from the mid-2000s, is that going to affect my memories of what they accomplished in NXT? It shouldn't. It shouldn't affect the conversation that we have about them. They were tremendous in NXT. If their NXT run ended now then that's six months of just unbelievable tag team action. Tag team action that rivals any of the other tag team action 
almost, excluding the Revival's amazing 2016, which is on the pedestal from here forward and maybe forever for me on the tag team pantheon. Um, it's just, it was that good. I mean, it's just been that good. It's been so tremendous, and I just, I loved it. I loved that show, and I loved that it started out with that match. Pete Dunne and Walter is number three, is number four for me, excuse me, and it was amazing in its own right. Just a tremendous, stylistically different match, and I think that's what's cool. I don't think that NXT always gets credit from that, at least from the guys I listen to. I love listening to the guys on the right side of the pond, you know, do their thing. But the one thing that I guess, because I listen to to them a lot, I get that it shapes my perception that maybe not everybody really digs the NXT TakeOver pay-per-view style. I think popular reception would say that it's, a, that it's pretty incredible. And I think that what I like about it, that I think my buddies from the right side of the pine don't like about it, for some reason, is they don't really feel like there's a lot of variety there. I think that there's a lot of variety there. I think that the way that the action rolls out, yes, it is very action-heavy, but I still think it's different. I think it's different enough, and that's what I think was so great about TakeOver New York, is that the main event was different, the tag team match was different, the second match was different, the women's match was different, and this match between Dunn and Walter was different, and the end result is you've got five pretty distinct matches. You know, they all have a lot of action, but the styles involved to produce that action are different. So they're all great. I mean, it's just, it's great match after great match after great match. And I guess what NXT TakeOver has done historically to me answers a pretty important question, which is, if you just had a card full of great matches, would that be okay? Well, I mean, if it's two to three hours long and it's that, then absolutely it's great and that's okay. Because that's just, that's amazing. I mean, that's like one of the basketball games that I watch sometimes. I just got done watching what was an incredible run-up to the Final Four in the championship game where the games are close and lead changes happen back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it's that way the whole game. Occasionally, you'll get a game that you watch where it's some team coming down from like 15 coming back. Maybe they win. Maybe they don't. I think that NXT TakeOver cards do a good job of presenting a lot of different stories. So I, I love NXT TakeOver, and I thought that Dunn versus Walter was great. Interestingly enough, funny story, old friend of the program Dave Fenichel, current friend of the program James Boyd, are sitting next to each other with Rich Latta, friend of the program as well, live in the building that night, and Dave Fenichel texts me that Dunn versus Walter was really disappointing and was awful. So here I'm watching this match with that in mind. I'm a little bit behind in my viewing of it. And here's Fenichel's words echoing my mind. And I'm thinking, God, what in the world? And I thought he was dead serious. I don't know why. But I thought he was dead serious. And I I texted him after. I was like, maybe he just doesn't like British Strong Style. But I came away from it thinking, man, that was really good. Why, why didn't he like it? Uh, he was kidding the whole time, by the way. Him and James Boyd apparently were having themselves a little bit of laughs at my expense because I'm guessing they thought that I, that, that they, they knew that I thought that they were being serious. So uh, I thought that match was great. Cheers to them. And the Walter era has begun. I think that was the right decision, but I don't think it could have gone much better for Pete Dunne in defeat. What a heck of a run he's had at the top 
of NXT UK and what value he's added to NXT to NXT takeover lore along the way. Number three for me was Cole versus Gargano. I really liked that match. I may end up loving it. I've heard some really big things said about it from a historical perspective. I heard one person say that maybe Belzer made note that it was the best match in WWE history, uh, highest rated match in WWE history. If that's correct, I don't know that I'd go that far. I mean, I think it was great. I would give it easily four and a half stars. I, on rewatch, I might go a little higher than that because I really do think it did a great job of throwing those final obstacles in Johnny Gargano's way of winning the NXT title, and it made it feel that much more sweet that they went that route when he did finally win the title. That said, for the first maybe quarter to third of the match, I felt like after seeing Ricochet versus uh, Johnny Gargano at TakeOver Phoenix, the rapid-fire sequences and exchanges were so crisply executed I had just recently watched that match again, and I felt like Adam Cole and Gargano tried to do something comparable, but were about maybe, not a half step off, but like a quarter step off. Like, it just wasn't fully in sync to me. That type of thing, for me, does tend to clean up at least a little bit on replay. It didn't for the women's main event at WrestleMania, I would say, but I've seen it do that with other matches. But that's the way I felt about it in the beginning. And then by the time they got to those final 20 minutes, I was very much, again, locked in and engaged. So any 40-minute match is going to test your endurance as a viewer, as well as test their endurance in the ring. So I think I need a good rewatch, but you know, just from my memory of it right here, right now, those final 20 minutes were tremendous. And I really, really liked how they went about booking the finish with the Undisputed Era coming out there and a few of the big false finishes that are, are, are certainly uh, tropes by this point of a Johnny Takeover match. But excellent work from both guys. Still feel like there's more that they could do even after a two out of three falls match. Maybe doing a more traditional one-on-one title match would be a lot of fun. I had a hard time choosing between that and Matt Riddle versus the Velveteen Dream for second or third place. I went with the Dream versus Riddle for my favorite match from TakeOver New York, which I look forward to backing that up with a replay as well. I thought that match was just flat-out fantastic. It was kind of a mid-card classic that doesn't happen very often on TakeOver shows. Every TakeOver match gets so much opportunity, typically, to maximize what it can do that it's almost hard to classify one as a mid-card match because some of the greatest NXT TakeOver matches ever have felt very epic in what would otherwise be classically mid-card scenarios. Like a 25-minute Gargano and Ricochet match for the NXT North American title isn't a mid-card match. It's a championship match. It's it's not given mid-card opportunities. It's not given mid-card presentation. Neither, for that matter, was this North American title match given anything less than a spotlight befitting of major stars who were wrestling over a very important championship cog in the wheel of the NXT machine. And these two look like main eventers, and I felt like what we were watching was a preview of the future. And that's probably, for me, what made me choose it 
over Cole versus Gargano, because I couldn't escape that feeling. There was this sort of aura about that match that made me feel like we were witnessing something that three or four years down the line we could see happen again in the WrestleMania main event. And and Vince McMahon would be on board with it, and all the WWE higher-ups that maybe would have a, a hesitation toward putting smaller wrestlers in the main event would look at Matt Riddle, would look at the Velveteen Dream and say, this is what the future is all about. These guys can do all the athletic stuff. These guys have great physiques. They've got great looks. They have lots of charisma, although I'm still not sold on Riddle's ability to translate that into a monologue, which is the skill you need in WWE to get to the top unless you've got a mouthpiece, which is just such a rare thing in this day and age. But I look at those two guys and the work that they put on, the innovation on display. I loved the story that they told with the Velveteen Dream trying to rise up and match what Matt Riddle was trying to put down in terms of the presentation, his style. I love how the Velveteen Dream seems so adaptable in that way. Tremendous work. Number one, though, going back to WrestleMania. Kofi Kingston versus Daniel Bryan. Oh, man, what a WWE Championship match. What a presentation. What a complete package. WrestleMania that I grew up with was all about matches like this. It was about going with the hot hand. It was about taking a star who had gone up through the ranks, who had earned their way to the top, and giving them the platform to maximize their success. Not just on that night, but because WrestleMania provides this platform that no other show does. And even if WrestleMania isn't what I remember it being back in the day, even if it is a real, really, really clear example of the more is more era, the age of excess as others have deemed it, it still provides that platform that no other show can. No other show can. You can't win the Royal Rumble in a great Royal Rumble match and come out of it with this sparkling legacy that no one else would be able to touch. You can't win the main event of SummerSlam and get that same kind of accolade that you can that you can when someone like Kofi Kingston comes along. Takes all of the momentum that he had built throughout his entire career from really good mid-card singles guy who no one really thought would ever get to the top to hugely over, hugely charismatic amidst this group called the New Day that really broke down barriers and broke records with merchandise and did it for years while never really getting an opportunity to advance, takes all that momentum, puts it straight into about a six to seven week period leading up to WrestleMania 35, and then has an an absolutely tremendous match with Daniel Bryan. No one will ever forget this. No one will ever forget it for so many reasons. There are the obvious ones. As talked about last week, as put out there on social media, very rightfully so, even if WWE didn't outright say it, this was about an African-American guy winning the WWE Championship on the grandest stage of them all for the very first time in 35 years. That Look at the faces of some of the people that they showed in the crowd and bars You look on social media and get the reactions that so many people around the world had to that result. The match itself built beautifully to that result. 
and what a result and what a match. You put those two things together, a great result at the end of a great match, that's what I wanted for Seth Rollins, man. That's what I would have wanted for Becky Lynch, but we got it from Kofi Kingston, and as such, that's one of probably the best 20 WrestleMania matches of all time. And you know me, if you don't know me, putting stuff like that into context is kind of my thing. You know, I just finished a book last year on contextualizing the greatest in the history of the WrestleMania era in the ring. And Kofi Kingston versus Daniel Bryan is going to join that pantheon. Where? That's a topic for another day. Perhaps we'll talk about that next week. But my goodness, that was the most complete WrestleMania package that we've seen in a long time. Kofi Kingston was tremendous. Daniel Bryan was tremendous. The counters, all of the, the just the swift building movement from the beginning of that match up to the climax where they did a great job of being a little bit more nuanced. NXT likes to go for gusto, man. They'd like to go for that home run shot. And when they're trying to draw emotion out of you, then, I mean, they do it pretty heavy-handedly. That's one thing about that style I love, but not everybody does. A calmer, more nuanced sort of style, like what we saw from Brian versus Daniel, uh, Brian versus Kofi, where a great near fall isn't someone hitting a finishing move or a humongous, innovative move we've never seen before. It's someone hitting a, a, a springboard splash and then it getting countered into a roll-up. That's a great near fall, too. I liked that about Daniel Bryan versus Kofi Kingston. I thought it was nicely paired back, and I thought it was a very good older-school type of main event that incorporated a lot of new-school concepts. So, a tremendous performance. The video package was great. The crowd was alive, big-time alive. One of the great crowd reactions of the last few years at WrestleMania especially, but overall, great match, great finale with all the stuff that they did uh, afterwards with Kofi's kids coming into the ring, the New Day celebrating with him. A tremendous night for Kofi Kingston. So overall, WrestleMania 35 is going to be remembered for Kofi Kingston's moment, for Kofi Kingston and Daniel Bryan's match. Everything else, well, you know, I mean, you got a seven-and-a-half-hour show. You get one great match out of it. I think in this day in the this day and age, you need more. You need to present more greatness in the ring for a show of that magnitude for it to be remembered as everything that it could be is it the standard bearer for the modern gigantic massively long wrestlemania show i don't know that i would go that far personally i still think after kofi and brian that the show pretty much just sort of coasted on down to the point where it kind of mercifully ended by the time that it ended. Like, I tried to sit back and, and watch it, and, and I couldn't get through the whole thing. I, it thought it was just way too much of a commitment to make without taking the next day off, and I just didn't feel compelled to do that this time around. So it did some great things that past WrestleManias of this type of uh, format have not done. It executed the winners really well. It's refreshing that... WWE made the choice for all three of the top protagonists to win in those title situations. There didn't seem any sense to me to have one of them lose. And I'm glad that they decided that they didn't need one of them to lose. Because they all three needed, I think, to win. 
But we need more quality, I think, in future years for it to be called a great WrestleMania. I think, as I mentioned on Twitter, I don't think that you could say that this is a fantastic WrestleMania without hanging the caveat on it, quote-unquote, for what it was, which was a seven-and-a-half-hour long show. So uh, those are my thoughts. Hit me up on Twitter. Let me know what you thought of the show or any of the things that I've put out there today as my top ten. What were your top ten? I would like to know. So... Thank you for joining me today. Please check out the rest of the LOP radio lineup throughout the course of the week. Just go to lordsofpain.net, look down at the radio section. We've got some great stuff. It's the best podcast network out there offering you the most variety with the best quality. So, ladies and gentlemen, everyone have a really restful couple of weeks after a very exhausting WrestleMania weekend. And we'll catch you next time on The Doc Says. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to March Mayhem, the tournament to crown the very best wrestler in the entire world. Today, Kenny Omega, the top overall seed in the 65-man tournament, faced Seth Rollins, the second seed from the Blackheart Regional. Before we get to the results, let's first put into focus both Omega and the Architect's roads to the final match. Rollins defeated a pair of mats, Jackson and Riddle, to get to the Sweet 16 then defeated Zack Sabre Jr. and Austin Aries to reach the Final Four, where he outlasted Johnny Gargano. Omega, meanwhile, began the tournament with wins over Roderick Strong and Mustafa Ali, then later Andrade and Finn Balor before overcoming Daniel Bryan's challenge in the Final Four. Both men had long and arduous roads. Both men also received the most fan votes to get to this point, who emerged victorious. There was a tremendous amount of fanfare for both men, as evidenced by a Both These Guys chant before the bell rang and a This Is Awesome chant after the initial lightning-quick exchange. The structure of the match featured several such instances of lightning-quick exchanges, with finishers teased early, signature offense countered with precision, and chain wrestling utilized in an attempt to gain some sort of advantage. The total runtime clocked in at 38 minutes and 12 seconds and essentially could be broken down into the aforementioned exchanges across the first 10 minutes, followed by Omega taking control for the next quarter hour with intermittent bursts of Rollins' offense, followed by those roles being reversed until the 30-minute mark, and then signature offense and finishers attempted and connected for the final stanza. The finish saw Rollins run up the ropes to catch Omega, perched on the top turnbuckle with a superplex, but when Rollins and Omega bounced up off the mat and Seth immediately attempted the Falcon Arrow, Omega maneuvered behind Seth and hoisted him up onto his shoulders for the one-winged angel, but in mid-attempt, Rollins' victory rolled through. Omega kicked out of the pin attempt, but Rollins swiftly loaded up for the curb stomp, but the extra height Seth added for emphatic stomping proved his downfall as Omega popped up and caught him on his shoulders, connecting with the one-winged angel and scoring the victory. As Omega celebrated without music, the crowd roared in applause, eventually chanting, That was awesome! Rollins raised Omega's hand in victory, and then Omega returned the favor before the two shared a lengthy embrace, inaudibly speaking to one another out of earshot of the cameras. Kenny Omega is the best wrestler in the entire world, ladies and gentlemen, and now March Mayhem is officially over. We hope you've enjoyed the tournament, and stay tuned in June for the WWE Women's World Cup, pitting the 32 most accomplished females in WWE lore in Battle World Cup style. Thank you. Goodbye and good night.
This is just what the doc ordered. I'm saying welcome. They sick of the other shows. Chad here to help them. The author of the mania era is bringing terror on LOP radio. This is the prepare for the knowledge that he about to showcase. Like a bar that you lift, his opinions hold weight. He wrote a few books and he's working on another for y'all. This a five-star podcast. Chad, let's get it on. Author of the WrestleMania 